0: Life Radio. This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Good day from California. Welcome to the Anything Possible podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a veterinary surgeon, former co host of Pet Talk and Nat Geo Wild, host of the Dr. Courtney Show, and just all-around pet lover. As many of you know, this is a podcast where we celebrate the fact that everywhere you look, there is the beauty of the human-animal bond. That bond influences our everyday lives, and lucky for me, I get to talk to some of the most fascinating and engaging people who help to explore and strengthen that human-animal bond. When I say I'm blessed to talk to some of the most fascinating and engaging people, well, sometimes... And I'll just be honest, they're usually one or the other. They're either fascinating or engaging, and, and I get it, it's hard to be both. But the conversation you're about to hear today truly satisfies the essence of both, engagement and fascination. Honestly speaking, this is going to be a treat, and we're genuinely lucky to hear from these two genius minds. But before we start this conversation, I want you to think of the last time you did something dangerous, Deliberately dangerous. I'm not talking about something that happened to you where you felt like it was a close call. You were driving down a highway and someone almost ran you off the road or you almost got hit on your bicycle. I'm talking where you purposely put yourself in a dangerous situation for either the thrill or possibly to improve a skill set that was previously underdeveloped. Although I'm sure there's been plenty of other dangerous situations I've put myself into, last night I started to reminisce about my adventures mountain biking. You know, as many of you know, I grew up in Connecticut, and the state of Connecticut, and this is true, is the most boring state in the continental U.S. I'm, I'm kidding. Of course it's a wonderful state, but where I grew up, there wasn't a tremendous amount to do. And so on the weekends, my entertainment was essentially the woods. Go outside, my parents would say. Well, fortunately, there were plenty of trees in my backyard, and for a while, mountain biking became the favorite weekend pastime for me and my friends. Almost every weekend, we would just meander through the woods on our bikes, and on one weekend, my brother happened to be home, my older brother, and I invited him to go. Surprisingly, he said yes, and I was so happy because at that age, he was starting to get busy with his own friends that anytime we hung out, it was kind of like a special occasion. And, you know, as many of you know who have older siblings, some portion of your life is spent constantly trying to impress them. All you want to do is show them that you're fun to hang out with, but inevitably, you end up trying just a little bit too hard to fit in. This particular weekend, we were riding through the woods and stopped at this deep ravine. I mean, there are large ravines everywhere, but this one... This one was not only huge, but it looked like Mother Nature had booby-trapped the dirt path with gigantic tree roots. The slope on some of these trails felt like it was over 45 degrees. Suffice to say, the route was treacherous and extremely dangerous, and anybody attempting to go down these trails should have gone down very slowly and cautiously. But when you're an adolescent, there's nothing about slow and cautious that sounds even slightly appealing. We did these trails with no real mountain bike training, no helmet, and inexpensive bottom-of-the-barrel mountain bikes. And when I was on my mountain bike, peering over the handlebars, getting ready to careen myself down the slopes of this skinny dirt path riddled with tree roots and raspberry bushes, I was super scared. But I couldn't let my brother or any of my friends know. I just had to do it. For some reason, I couldn't resist. There were plenty of spills, crashes, bloody foreheads, no missing teeth. But in the end, I got to hang out with my friends hopefully impressed my brother, and I looked fear in the face, and I smiled. In retrospect, better decisions could have been made. But why did I do that? What was so appealing about deliberately placing myself in danger, knowing that I would experience abject fear? Was there anything I learned as an adolescent from that experience? Well, thanks to this incredible book aptly titled Wildhood, it helped to shed some light on those experiences and perhaps absolve me from any personal responsibility for those poor decisions I made. But no, really, what this book provides is a systematic and thorough description of how we truly belong to a planetary tribe. On this podcast, you know, we really try to highlight the beauty of the human-animal bond, and one could argue the depth of that bond, that connection, couldn't get stronger than the conversation we're about to have right now. Wildhood is a book that describes the similarities That almost all organisms share during young adulthood. And today, we have the pleasure of speaking with the two authors responsible for this excellent body of research. It's a truly fascinating read. I mean, today's conversation will will open your eyes. Maybe it'll make you look at your human family members differently. It'll absolutely make you look at the rest of your species-diverse family members differently. I found this book and this research extremely illuminating. For some of you, this conversation will change your perspective of human behavior, and for others, it will upend Preconceived notions of how you thought animals were meant to behave. But before we get to our exciting guests, I just want to be sure to let everyone out there know how to get in contact with me. If you have any questions, thoughts, or topic discussions, you can always reach me at Dr. Courtney DVM on Twitter and Instagram. Questions with positivity and love will get answered with priority. But not exclusivity, so we'll pretty much answer anything. So now that we've set the scene, let's pause for a few brief moments. And when we come back, I'll be speaking with two incredibly incisive authors who are going to give you an eye-opening comparative assessment between human and animal adolescence.
1: D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E When we put him on the Dynavite, he took right to it. All of these symptoms disappeared. Dynavite is nutrition. If you want the dog to be healthy, you got to feed it something
0: healthy. Something that he actually likes to eat. You need to put him on Dynavite. Dynavite for life. If you love your dog, you don't just want him healthy, you want him to be happy. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E
1: dot oh.
0: Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. We're back, and I'm super excited to speak with our two guests today. I don't think we've ever had the pleasure of being joined by two guests simultaneously, so this might be a first for me, but there are no two people who I would want to experience this seminal moment with more than these two. Additionally, I don't always interview authors because for some, skills in writing and skills in speaking can be mutually exclusive. Some authors aren't the best conversationalists and vice versa, but not these two. Today, we're joined by Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Ms. Catherine Bowers. Dr. Natterson Horowitz is a visiting professor at the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. She's also a professor of medicine in the UCLA Division of Cardiology, and she is the president of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. Catherine Bowers is a science journalist who has a passion for education. She's taught courses at UCLA and Harvard. She was a staff editor at The Atlantic, a producer and writer for CNN, and a New New America, Future Tense Fellow, which is an organization that endeavors to enlighten us about future technological possibilities. They are rigorous researchers, excellent writers, and have written an absolutely spellbinding novel. I'm lucky to have them here with me today. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Horowitz and Ms. Bowers. How are you both?
1: Oh, thank you so much. We're so happy to be here.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, this is good. I, I got to be honest, and and I, you know, I'd hate to bury the lead here, but I'm a huge fan of the book, and it's uh, it's it's really well, it's wonderfully written, and I hope everybody gets a chance to read it. Thank you, thank you. Did you have fun reading? Well, before I ask you if you had a good time writing it, because I'm sure, you know, when you read the book, you get an inkling, a window into the challenges that you had writing this book. But before we do that, I kind of want to set the scene a little bit. Could both of you, and it doesn't matter who starts first, is set the scene of kind of where you grew up and how your adolescent environment sort sort of set the framework for your future careers and future research.
2: Well, I'll jump in. This is uh, this is Barbara. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I grew up in uh, Southern California to a family of a lot of the my parents are psychotherapists. A lot of our family are psychologists. And so there's a real kind of orientation to understanding things through that lens. And, you know, my adolescence was, you know, kind of. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good, kind of typical for that age, um, you know, ups and downs. But it never, ever occurred to me, maybe because I was in a family of psychotherapists, but it never occurred to me to think across the animal kingdoms about the challenges I was facing. And in fact, it wasn't until, I mean, truly decades after my own adolescence that Catherine and I teamed up to look across species to understand human health challenges, and, and that resulted in our book, *Ubiquity*. But- um, Looking back now, which I do frequently since we started writing Wildhood and at my own adolescence, I would have understood it in a completely different way, an expanded way. And, and particularly, I think I would have had more compassion for myself if I had understood some of the animal and evolutionary connections.
0: So it starts uh, with compassion. How about you, Ms. Bowers?
1: Yeah, the idea of compassion for that delicate dangerous, exciting age is uh, really important to us. And that was a big part of our writing was both allowing adolescents and parents of adolescents and anybody who has an adolescent in their life to uh, value and respect that time of life. I, am, I also grew up in Southern California. My um, father's a geologist. So I had a sort of natural um, upbringing. We were always out camping and out in the field. I was in 4-H where I raised rabbits. Um, my mom is a teacher and a researcher, and they're both somewhat but um, contrarians. So um, I kind of had a like a questioning that went along with every um, every question that came up for me. So that was I was always asking. I had more of a like a geologic time perspective on um, life, which I think it ties into an evolutionary perspective.
0: No, it totally makes sense. My dad was a teacher as well, a mm. eighth grade English teacher. And then mm. uh, my parents tried to be psychotherapists on me. So it <laughs> totally makes sense without any real training. So that totally makes sense. You know, when you think about these life skills, and, and both of you are very accomplished, and when you think about these life skills, you identify four very important life skills. And the first one you identify is fear. And it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, a lot of listeners listening to this podcast are pet parents themselves. And so they look at their own lives, but they also look at their lives through the lens of their pet. And so when we think about training, even in in dogs, there are some behaviorists who think that really it comes down to in terms of when a a dog or cat decides that when they're trying to figure out what type of training, what should they do, what's not allowed and what's permitted. They do look at it through a lens of safety what's safe? Is it safe for me to pee in the living room or is it safe <laughs> for me to pee outside? If it's not safe and, uh, you know, and safety can be interpreted through treats, praise, those sorts of things. Oh, it's safer. Good things happen to me when I pee outside versus inside. How did you identify these four critical life skills that you identify in the book? And are they ranked in order as similar to like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Meaning do you have to achieve the first one and make sure that's okay before you get to the other three life skills?
2: Boy, it feels like we're talking to a third co-author. We've had this conversation <laughs> so many times because um, we were, you know, when we finally identified what, what we did from a methodology perspective was to um, do these very extensive systematic reviews, really look across the peer reviewed literature for Information that pertained to adolescents in not just, you know, mammals. We looked all the way from crustaceans and fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. And um, anyway, after years of doing this research, we were able to identify what are really four tests or skills, but sometimes we talk about them as the four tests that really shape the destiny of every adolescent, human or other animals. And yeah, one of them is learning to stay safe, and fear is a big part of that. There are lots of interesting, for us, we discovered that, um, you know, we learn all, every animal learns about fear in different ways. We learn, some of it's inborn, right? Some of it's just biologically, uh, we're born with it. Some of it we learn from parents, if we're the type of species that have parents, and some of it we learn from peers. And interestingly, fish, for example, learn to school partially, it's inborn, but many fish will not learn to school properly if they're isolated from their peers. So a lot of learning about being safe and being part of the group if you're a fish and you know, a fish or a bird and a flock is learning to be part of the group is actually learned. The one connection that I continue to find really fascinating between human adolescents and canine adolescents, and actually canine and cat and avian bird adolescents, is that pet parents sometimes can, out of an unawareness of what adolescent behavior is, can be intolerant of adolescent animals. So adolescent dogs are at um, the highest risk to be surrendered for behavioral reasons between the ages of six months and about two and two and a half years, which is canine adolescence. And you know we are as humans so often intolerant of adolescent human behavior partially because we we misinterpret it as, as being bad or being out of control when in fact, often it's, it's developmentally normal behavior that with training and time will resolve. So I thought that connection between the risk that adolescent dogs are placed in simply by virtue of going through this developmentally kind of challenging period and the risk that human adolescents are uh, put in is that that parallel was really interesting.
0: Fascinating. I, I, I think about in terms, one sentence that, one phrase that I thought was particularly poignant is that you said, you know, being an adolescent could simply be a life-limiting event. And yeah. I, you know, it that makes complete sense in terms of shelters and euthanasia and having to, uh, dogs who are who are never adopted from the shelter due That's to right. uh, looking at historically, okay, why was this dog dropped off? Why was this dog relinquished? But then we also think about it in a surgical standpoint. I see dogs who are ingesting all kinds of things from pantyhose to Mm. socks Mm. to underwear, uh, rocks. And you know, when I hear about it in a eight-year-old or seven-year-old dog, everybody sort of stops and stands still because they feel like that is juvenile behavior. You know what I mean? And so Mm. when a dog is an adolescent, we tend to see a lot of young dogs who are engaging in things that can make them medically and surgically at risk. Are there things that you saw in your studies that made adolescents more prone to injury, just things that quote unquote where you said, Well, that wasn't a good decision to make. Yes, absolutely.
2: So we found that what's called neophilia, which is um, you know, interest in an attraction
0: to things that are new is I'm high sorry. I'm so sorry. That's a fascinating that's a great term. It's called neophilia.
2: Right. Neophilia. And adolescent Love
0: of the new. Love of the new.
2: And whether you're a human adolescent, uh, and I think all of us can kind of relate to that. It's funny, I have a distinct memory, which I now find absolutely incomprehensible because I'm on airplanes all the time and just want to take a nap. I'm a tiny (laughs) bit antisocial on planes. But when I was probably 12 or 13, I remember our family took a trip, and I was so excited to find out who I was going to be sitting next to because we were going to have – it was like a new person. And so – but anyway, human adolescence is characterized by, you know, Enhanced attraction to new things, and that can get us into trouble. But it was fascinating to learn that adolescent whales are most likely to become lost and separated from the group. In fact, one of the cetacean biologists that we talked to about this said that when a whale is lost, they call them teenagers because literally they're almost always adolescents. And when you read about, you know, wild animals who are living at the urban wild interface who have wandered into, you know, a shopping mall, a liquor store, a preschool which happened in uh, Santa Monica very often those animals are adolescents who are dispersing that is they're leaving their their homes their their natal burrows or you know uh, whatever and what's driving them biologically that is the neurobiology that's compelling them to leave those safe areas is this brain biology of neophilia
1: And they're also inexperienced, so they not only are attracted to new things and new places, they just don't have any experience with what those new things can do to them. We went on a trip to the coast of California off um, San Francisco, just north of Monterey, and learned about some sea otters that travel into an area called the Triangle of Death, which is... um, heavily populated by great white sharks and it's the adolescents that will go into this area with the sharks whereas the younger otters and the older otters won't go in there so that's the sort of wild animal risk-taking that uh, we were really interested to see in this uh, wild population
0: that's fascinating it makes me think about going down those deep dirt bike ravines i'm mm-hmm. like oh my goodness it, i just felt like a sea otter in the triangle of death you know what i mean so <laughs> this is good stuff I, what i was interested in is and i just wanted to get a little bit wonky for for the writers out there, and this isn't necessarily related to pet parents, but the way that the book is written is so beautiful in that there's just constant analogies, constant metaphors to remind the reader and really drive home that point that making that comparison between human and adult adolescence. How challenging was it? And what was your thinking behind making sure that the reader is constantly focused and attentive to the fact that this is a comparative assessment and that we truly are as you say a planetary tribe. How challenging was that?
1: Well, well, part of it was that we were constantly finding these overlaps in our own experiences. Both thinking about our own wildhoods, and Barbara and I were both raising adolescent animals of our own—adolescent human animals. We're both moms, and <laughs> okay. um, it's in the house. Um, and in fact, the um, the idea of going, telling your kid to go out into the woods to find themselves was <laughs> something that I experienced as well. <laughs> okay. Um, But it was a a challenge to make sure that we were scientifically credible at every moment because this is based on our, you know, our 10 years of research into animal-human overlap and five years specifically on this phase of life. And then also we didn't want to anthropomorphize in the writing either because that's, you know, that is another trap that we didn't want to fall into. At the same time, we didn't want to fall prey to human exceptionalism. So we decided to tell the book and these four parts through four real-life animal coming-of-age stories and we wanted to make it global and we wanted to look at a range of species. So we chose a penguin, a hyena, a humpback whale, and a European wolf to tell the stories of these four core life skills that every adolescent needs to learn in order to become a mature adult. I don't know if we've actually said all four of them yet, but the first one that we've been talking about is how to be safe from predators and exploiters. The other three are how to navigate social hierarchies and find places in groups, how to express sexuality and interpret the romantic overtures of others, and then finally how to be self-reliant enough so as not to starve when you go out into the wild on your own. So it's safety, status, sex, and self-reliance. And we came to those four by our research into behaviors that are found in this phase of life that are less frequently seen in younger animals and older animals. So we found that animals, like we were talking about neophilia earlier, are more attracted to new things and they take more risks. They tend to gravitate toward their peers at this Time of life, um, the same way that humans do, they tend to experiment with courtship behaviors. Mm -hmm. So, if we saw that behavior in a human, we might say that they were experimenting sexually. I mean, that is a term you hear all the time about. Teenagers, right. they're you know sexually experimenting. but what we found in in wild populations is that they're actually experimenting with courtship, not actually population. and then finally they tend to at some point disperse from their natal territory. So that's how we came up with the four different categories. And again, in terms of the writing, we wanted to tell stories of real animals tracked by scientists over months and years, but it was just so important to us to focus on the similarities rather than the differences.
2: Can I just jump in and say one thing to add? Since you opened the door of wonkiness, it's been really, there's a revolution going on in terms of what we can learn about wild animals based on GPS and radio tracking and drones. And we were able to tell the stories of these real adolescent, you know, wolves and whales and and, uh, penguins, because there is so much rich data, which we were able to mine. We used data from groups of wildlife biologists who had been studying these taxa in the field. And we simply put the lens of adolescence on to tell the story. But it's exciting in terms of the planetary tribe and looking for lots of commonalities, not just adolescence, which I think we're, we can look forward to in the future.
0: Well, you mentioned, yeah, and the future is is an excellent word because both of you, in the process of researching this book, are using a lot of futuristic technologies, things that, and basically reimagining what's possible. When you discuss things like GPS, radio tracking, and drones, just so that we can drill down on how thoroughly researched this book is and how these behaviors were so deeply studied. What were some of your greatest challenges? You even talk about trekking across these planes to to research, <laughs> and that when you get there, you know it doesn't come to fruition. What was some of the greatest challenges? Because what's happening is a lot of people are watching uh, these documentary series and Mm -hmm. there's a final episode that usually Mm -hmm. is included at the end that just basically shows the blooper reel or the Mm -hmm. challenges that they faced in documenting this behavior.
2: Yeah. Well, one thing just to mention, talk about the the blooper reel and, and the flubs. We have been collecting wildlife video of Adolescent animals doing it wrong. So, um, sort of, if you think about some of the most, you know, the, the spectacular stuff you see on planet Earth, it's, it's usually examples of, let's say, courtship behavior of the perfect, the most beautiful, perfect example of the courtship behavior we are interested in. And we have on our website some of the video of of adolescents doing it wrong, practicing and failing in all kinds of ways.
0: Yeah, thank so. you for those videos, by the way. we were just kind of uh, discussing offline, you know, before today, and I took a look at some of those. They are they are really both <laughs> hilarious and intriguing, you know, as you're watching them because you think about through your own personal experience and how awkward you were, uh, you know, I, at least I was. I know you do. <laughs> just not the um, you just came out amazing, but I was a late <laughs> bloomer and I was super awkward. So I look at it from that lens and it's great to see that
2: yeah i mean it was interesting we interviewed some of the wildlife biologists about the first times let's say a variety of first times but in particular the sexual first time for animals and it's remarkable how the descriptions are it can be strikingly similar in terms of fumbliness and just inexperience that kind of universal experience of being inexperienced but one of the other points is that we when we started this project, you know, we had spent Catherine and I are research writing and a teaching team. And we've spent now over a decade turning to the natural world for insights into, you know, cancer and heart disease and eating disorders and, and all of that. But it was not clear to us in the beginning that animals even had an adolescence, which is kind of shocking in a way to even say that. But there was some literature out there and some credible publications stating that adolescence was uniquely human. But of course, one of the things we learned in our years of of researching Zubiquity was that very often there are Unexamined assumptions about the uniqueness of a variety of things to our species. And once you start to sort of pull back the blindfold of human exceptionalism, you start to see, well, wait a minute, that's not the case. So, um, in the beginning, we were just asking the question do animals have a human like adolescence? Where's the literature? How can we find it? Where are those animals? How do they behave? And one of the things that we did, one of the strategies that we used to answer these questions was to go out in the field. And the field trip that we described in the beginning of the book has us, we ended up in Prince Albert National Park looking for adolescent bison. And Catherine, I'm going to pass the story
1: off to you. Bye. Oh
0: well, well we That's were there. A perfect with... segue. We're looking for adolescent bison. Okay, you take it from here. That's okay. perfect.
1: <laughs> well, we were um we were lucky enough to have as our tour guide Todd Shuri, who is the wildlife veterinarian for all of Canada's national parks. So it's wow. you know, one That's one vet with millions and millions, if not trillions, of animal patients across the continent. And we very much wanted to look at you know the adolescent behavior in these bisons. So we, we started it off and (laughs) it was muddy and it was hot and we were walking along and Todd sort of bent over and said, oh, look, there's some, some bear scat. And I looked at Barbara, she looked at me And he said, oh yeah, it's fresh So we were thinking, oh gosh, are we also going To be um, encountering some bears
0: along <laughs> Right, this, you're like, along you, did you bring Your bear mace, because I forgot <laughs> mine at <all>. home right.
1: <laughs> Exactly right, and Todd was Completely unconcerned, he was like, you know, it's fine He, w- he, he was on it, he knew what he, he what was going on Right. But we trekked and we trekked And we trekked and we trekked, and we walked Along, and eventually we did See some, you know, one or two bison Sort of off in the distance um, But they they were not the um, the adolescents that we were expecting to see. And I think you were getting at this a little bit with your question about how hard it is to basically see wild animals doing what you want them to be doing at the exact moment that you want them to be doing it. So yeah. we didn't actually get to see them on that trip, but then we were able to see them in, in different environments later. But um, but I think you're right that with the uh, incredible nature footage that we're seeing in all kinds of um, documentaries and, you know, various other ways, you just sort of think that that nature is just out there ready to perform when you want it to, and it isn't,
0: obviously. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, because, you know, I think about you out there with a wildlife veterinarian, and Mm. I would be remiss if I during our conversation, of course, I have to give a shout out to all my veterinarian colleagues out there and just ask this question. This is going to be a hard one. But did you find in the, your research that adolescents seem to handle injury, medical problems or or medical concerns that they might have differently than an adult might. We see on our side of course dogs who uh, adolescent dogs tend to need slightly more pain meds or if they are going through a surgery or if they're injured. Now they could be it could be just a more dramatic, you know, illustration of pain as to an, as an a, an adult would and so puppies tend to whine a little bit more adolescents tend to be a little bit more dramatic. They also tend to need sometimes slightly more sedation medications to protect them from injuring themselves. Let's say they broke a leg, they had the leg fixed, and now we need to protect that repair. Well, an adolescent is going to want to take off. And once they start feeling good, while a, a slightly older dog, an adult dog might say, you know what, there's something in me that says, I just had my bone fixed. Let me take a chill here. And so I was just curious if you saw anything out there in your research where, okay, an adolescent is handling this injury differently than an adult might.
2: That's a fascinating question. I don't have an instant response to that, but I do want to say that since you did a shout out to veterinarians, we always <laughs> like to, um, to do the same because, you know, our research really started because groups of veterinarians uh, were very generous and, and talked to us about answering the most basic questions, the most ignorant questions with patience and care. So um, we always want to thank um, the many, many, many veterinarians who have been our teachers through both projects. And also that
1: question is completely fascinating and exactly why we want to study this time of life, because if there are differences like that, that is news that the human medical community could really use, that if they need to use more sedation or more pain, sort of attention to pain at different ages and different stages of development, that's really important. Um, yeah, that's, and that's, that's, thank yeah. you for
0: bringing that up because it made me start to think about how they're starting to, they're making inroads into this where they're starting to look at why there's a disparity among races as to yes. wh- who gets prescribed pain meds. You know, we have seen African-American mothers receive or prescribe less pain meds less mm. frequently than others or, and they started to look at the gender dynamic and how most medications are tested on as, and I think you even mentioned this in your book and tested on men because of those yeah. quote unquote pesky hormones. Hormones in the way, and so mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to learn, both not only gender and race, but also you know age. And do adolescents actually feel more pain, or is it a situation that they're you know showing more signs of it, of quote unquote, being more dramatic? I, I think it's not the latter, but until more research is being done, then then I you know I think it's a good subject to talk about.
2: I just want to add one thing: is that there is a I think a problem across species. Let's say I'm um, confusing a big body. With a mature animal, human or or other animal, and
0: great point, great point,
2: right? And we see that in all kinds of ways. We see some of the stuff that's happened recently with young young men in this country being, you know, really adolescents being mistaken for dangerous adults um, when in fact they're just kids. And we see that, you know, certainly when our daughters are young and they go out and they try to and they they dress up like uh, young women, but they're thirteen years old. You know, that's that can be a scary thing too. Interesting to also see that in the the animal literature that there was a tendency to look at the wildlife literature and the the little animals were called juveniles and the big animals were called adults when in fact there's such a difference between a newly mature three-year-old zebra and a nine-year-old zebra, right? In terms of experience and knowledge and, and all
1: that stuff. So, we were also really interested to learn a term called aphibaphobia which means fear or even sometimes hatred of adolescence and I think that I mean I'd never really thought of that happening on in the clinic but right. um, but that makes sense too.
0: Yes. You know, you, you mentioned a three-year-old zebra is different than a nine-year-old zebra in terms of experience. Now, I just want to hit you both with a very difficult question. I apologize in advance, but I have to ask, which do you think, and if this question is unanswerable, I get it. Which do you think is a more powerful influence on lifetime success, ultimate success? Do you feel it's mentorship from their family members and older adults, or do you think it's experience what they essentially learn through trial and error? I'm sorry
2: to to be a question killer, but I think it's not an either or it's it's. Okay. Open. but it's actually really interesting that, of course, experience crucial, right? Inexperience, if you go back to that first first test, which is learning to stay safe, keep yourself right. safe. The paradox of adolescence is that inexperience puts you in mortal danger, but gaining experience can also be deadly for wild animals. So these behaviors like predator inspection where adolescent animals in groups approach predators rather than flee from them, and uh, they do that counterintuitive behavior to kind of gain experience in a a safer kind of way. So experience is crucial, but it's only part of it. We studied uh, groups of animals where there's lots of mentoring, sometimes by non- parents uh, for example mongoose adolescents are mentored by non-parents and um, one of the whale biologists that we talked to actually no it was um i can't remember who the scientist was who told us about this but there's a complex social feeding behavior and hunting behavior that orcas do called bubble net feeding where groups of orca uh, kind of have this it seems choreographed approach to creating bubbles in the water that trap schools of fish in the inside and it's Quite complex and takes a lot of training and learning and we learned that very often it's the adult orcas train non-offspring they train youngsters that are not their own but mentoring you know the the orcas who aren't trained to beach feed you know where they throw themselves onto the beach to grab prey if they're not mentored they're in danger so both
0: <laughs> it led me into my next Rumination and thought. In that, I am fascinated with predation, and I'll see, I'll, I'll sometimes watch predation sequences on nature documentaries over and over and over again. And particularly, <laughs> what I'm fascinated by is how do they know to do that? And so there are pet parents right now who have always just look at their pets, and they've asked the question. I've asked that question to myself: What's my dog thinking right now? What's my cat <laughs> thinking right now? And I would love to know. And this question sounds a little bit off the wall, but when you look at how complex chimpanzees hunt or how lions set traps or, as you just described, bubble net feeding, there has to be a level of communication there that can make that sequence so finely tuned and so choreographed when you look at wild dogs, African wild dogs, uh, you know, take down wildebeest. That did you find in your research that animals... That do you feel like there's a potential for them to be communicating in ways that we have yet to understand? That are are they essentially talking to each other out there in these very complex choreographed predation scenarios and we just aren't quite getting it?
1: I would say a hundred percent
0: there okay, is good. a lot about
1: that that we don't understand, but are starting to learn much more about. And you know, we talked to Wolf experts who told us about finishing school, which is sort of like post-puppy phase that wolves go through, but pre-dispersal phase where they have to learn how to behave on the hunt. And the first few times they're invited along with the grownups, sort of literally running with the big dogs. They're kind of given a little bit of a a leeway if they make a mistake, but the, the more experience they gain and the more they're learning how to hunt with the pack, the better they do, but also the less tolerant the rest of the group becomes for mistakes. So, And that's actually a really good example of a combined mentorship from older animals with the getting of the experience.
2: The uh, question of communicating with each other during the hunt, before the hunt, is so interesting. We we studied. Uh, there are some papers that look at how bats block the ultrasound, the sonar of other bats to prevent them from getting at the prey. So there's a kind of um, within the species competition for getting to food. That kind of it's almost like sabotaging. Well,
0: okay, I, I'm so sorry. This sounds futuristic and like next level. So not only do they use echolocation, a series of vibration sounds, to locate prey in the dark, where they just kind of go hunting for mosquitoes and that's and dragonflies and things like that. But right. you're saying they have the ability to use that echolocation to block another bat's echolocation to prevent them from getting the prey.
2: That's right. And when you see one study like that, you know, immediately you think, gosh, that's one group of, of biologists who are studying that one phenomenon. But that's a clue that that probably exists in a pretty widespread way across, you know, there are 8.7 million animal species on this planet. We know about less than 20% of them. So, you know, I suspect as Catherine said that this is a pretty widespread thing. It's interesting also that adolescence is a period of time during the life of a wild animal predator when hunting skills should be developed. They aren't always. Uh, There are, for example, some eagle species that are fledged, that is they leave the net before they've learned to actually take down prey, although their flying skills have developed. And um, on a visit to the endangered wolf center outside of uh, St. Louis, we learned that efforts to reintroduce you know, wild wolves who have not been able to, who are either not born in the wild or were brought into captive settings to be cared for and are to be reintroduced, that the most crucial thing they need to learn is how to hunt. It is not instinctive. It needs to be learned. And more often than not, it's starvation that endangers the lives of of wild animals, whether through reintroduction or in the wild. So starvation is a big threat and learning to hunt is unbelievably important. And you probably know this i have to say i did not know this before researching this book but even the most magnificent apex predators are more often unsuccessful when they set out to capture an animal than they are successful So, so much to learn from them.
1: And also breaking down the predator sequence was really interesting too. So to think about whether it's an aphid on the hunt or a, you know, an orca that a predator needs to go through the same four steps every time they need to detect their prey. They need to assess it for profitability. If it's worth their time and energy to go after it, then they need to form the attack and then they need to kill it. So it's a very complicated dance that they have to do but those four steps are the the same every time
0: yeah so you did a beautiful description in the book of those fundamental core principles of predation and, and I, I think it's worth everybody to take a good read would you mind what I'd love to do is just take a brief pause right now just for a few moments and when we come back I really want to talk about if we can I I don't feel like we've given the other three core life skills their much needed attention and their focus I I know we're we're starting to get short on time but really if you wouldn't mind joining me when we come back and we get a chance to talk about the other three is that okay Mm -hmm. all right perfect and we'll be right back And we're back. We're joined with Dr. Natterson Horowitz, Dr. Ms. Catherine Bowers. We're talking about their incredible book, Wildhood, and uh, we've been just having a fascinating conversation about some of the parallels between some of the pets you have at home right now and their adolescence, our own human adolescence, and of course, wildlife adolescence. And that's that sort of that triad or or trilogy, if you will. And that just shows our intersectionality and interconnectedness that I I love so much. We've gotten a great chance to talk about being safe. I asked them some off the wall questions that they were so nice to answer, and we also got a chance to talk about something that. I personally have an interest in, and that is just the predation sequence. But what I want to get into now is something is one of the other well-described life skills in the book, and that is status. And what I wanted to ask you is that, you know, is there anything in your work that you find, you know, As far as you describe prestige in a way that's very interesting as almost a special talent, as almost a way that the rest of the group would find very important. How important do you find is prestige in the development? of a hierarchy in the animal kingdom is as if I particularly let's say I'm not born into a high ranking position within my pack or within my particular group is there a special skill or something like that that could help elevate me in the hierarchy
2: <laughs> it's, yeah so animal groups right from fish actually from crustacean all the way to to mammals their hierarchies and those hierarchies are in the animal world, usually based on power, their dominance hierarchies, and uh, where an animal sits on that hierarchy, you know, it can impact whether they survive, whether they eat, whether they mate. So there's a real importance of. Of rising in status let's say and actually interestingly we determined that animals when they rise in status they're rewarded with a a serotonin kind of a good feeling let's say if i may and when they fall in status there's a kind of reprimand a chemical reprimand so that probably connects to uh how we feel you know when a kid when an adolescent gains in popularity they're happier and when they when they post something on instagram and they don't get any likes they have a status descent and they probably feel pretty miserable. It connects back, um, we think to the serotonin system, but we were able to, um, find data about and interviewed the scientists uh, who who have been following for a couple of decades these spotted hyenas in the Ngorongoro crater in Tanzania and one of the spotted hyenas was born at the bottom of the status hierarchy he was male and it's a female-dominated society and he was born to the lowest-ranking mother so he started out life with really his his future didn't look very bright but his name was Shrink they named him Shrink but Shrink had good social skills and he practiced them and he made friends and he created alliances and he um, developed coalitions and networks. And that, if you are an animal living in a flock, a herd or a school, is probably the most important thing you can do to um, improve your chances of rising in that uh, hierarchy.
0: Is to form social networks. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. great. And that's what I thought was very interesting is that we talk about – you just mentioned the sort of – you made an allusion towards getting likes on Instagram, and and I think it's incredibly fascinating and illuminating that the current – discussions and the news and the public zeitgeist about possibly trialing, getting rid of likes on Instagram can yeah. have anything to do with spotted hyenas. I mean, <laughs> most people would not draw the line yeah. together, but I see that connection. And, and, and it's truly fascinating, particularly because we're talking a lot about mental health and we talk a lot about social media, but the brain network and that we all have it. And would you mind defining for listeners out there just what the social brain network is and why it's so important, particularly during wildhood?
2: Yeah, the social brain network in humans um, is a collection of specific anatomic regions in the brain that collectively are responsible for detecting a person, you know, a change in, in status and then signaling to the brain of what to do about it. Right. So detecting and then feeling that shift in status, that social brain network is directly, is influenced again and regulated through these serotonin networks. Serotonin, of course, is a neurotransmitter in the brain. And when we... Our status changes. We have a mood change that is also regulated by, in part, by these serotonin networks. So serotonin is a common language between status and mood. But it turns out social brain networks are present in our animal ancestors. And fish, for example, we humans share a common ancestor with fish hundreds of millions of years ago. But fish have social brain networks that allow them to very quickly detect whether their status has risen or fallen and It's the fact that these social brain networks have been around for so long really points to how important it is for animals to recognize their status and do something about it. So when the connection back to Instagram and 15-year-olds and and particularly, frankly, a very, very worrisome trend toward an increase in depression and anxiety among middle school and high school students is that during adolescence, these social brain networks are especially active. And that when the the, the pain that an adolescent feels when their status goes down and probably the excitement when their status goes up, it is more powerful than any other time in their lives. And so recognizing that the social brain network and status is so important, has been so important for our animal ancestors, I think can make us more compassionate about helping our own adolescents deal with the ups and downs of their mood. If I had known this when my kids were adolescents, I think I wouldn't have said things like, why do you care what she thinks about you?
0: Because <laughs> right. mm-hmm. it means everything in life. Yeah, right. life, yeah.
1: It's, It feels like a matter of life and death because for our animal ancestors, it really was. And we were walking around with this ancient neurobiology that it's also really interesting that we share with other species. And so anytime these social brain networks meet, they're functioning. And I think that that's part of our relationship with our pets and the other animals in our lives is our social brain networks kind of know how to talk to each other.
0: That's fascinating. I wanted to know, in particularly when you talk about serotonin and a lot of the, the way that you feel, your mood is regulated or at least influenced strongly by these powerful neurotransmitters, these substances, these chemicals. I think for a lot of people during their adolescence, is times to experiment with recreational drugs. Now, of course, wildlife do not have access to recreational drugs. But I think we've all seen videos of deer eating fermented apples or squirrels eating fermented apples and kind of stumbling around or anything like that. At all during your research, did you find that adolescent animals were prone to try to find or seek out Things that might alter their reality, whether it's a herb that has those psychotropic effects or a fermented apple. Did you see in animal adolescence a propensity to experiment with recreational substances like you do in human adolescence?
2: We didn't find that particularly, although we spent many, many hours looking at that viral video of the dolphin adolescence, you know, and the puffer fish and all the cats that went around. Right? Have you you've not seen that? I don't think I have. Right. Well, you know, again, a a big question mark about what's actually happening there, um, versus the way people have framed it, which is basically that they're pass quote unquote passing around the puffer, you know. Okay.
0: but, <laughs> got it, got it, got it.
2: But what is true about adolescent animals is that they are really likely to do what their peers are doing. So, if you, there have been, this is for decades, work has been done looking at juvenile rats and what their food preferences are, and then looking at how those food preferences literally overnight change when they're placed with adolescent peers, with their peers. And uh, they suddenly go from choosing, you know, if they're given, when they're juveniles and they're offered food that's tasty versus food that's unpalatable, well, they always eat the tasty food. But uh, when they put them in with their peers at day 42, if their peers are eating the unpalatable food, they just ignore the food that for the first 41 days of their life, they have consistently preferred and they'll eat what their peers are eating. And that goes so far as to if their peers are eating food that when they were juveniles had literally made them vomit, had made them sick, they still will eat that food if their peers are eating it. So the moral of the story is and how this might connect to substances is that peers have a big influence probably never bigger than during an animal's adolescence.
0: Wow. It's incredible because we we've long believed in that and that the it was something you described very well in the book is that why is it that adults have difficulty communicating with adolescents. You, you know, it's almost like the adults are speaking, the adolescents are not listening. But it's that adults have there's a gap there, and that they are sort of out of dated, uh, out with the old, in with the new, and that the, the peer group now becomes a very Strong influencer on their ultimate outcome. And I think that's something that I've known for a while, but I've never seen it crystal clear and so well described in a, in a book before is essentially saying, hey, how much do our parents really matter? And of course they matter in a big way, but the adolescents seem to be very powerfully influenced by the peer group. I I just wanted to find out from you in terms of there's been a lot of discussions in the news about snowplow parents, parents who essentially move a lot of the difficulties of their children that their children face out of the way in your research. Finding snowplow parents or parents who would make their children's lives easier, that could actually be really deleterious to their lifetime outcomes. Is that true what you think? What we
1: found um, in our research was that parents in the wild come in every kind. You can okay. find helicopter parents. You can find right. snowplow parents. You can free find free-range range parents. parents. Yes. Yeah, yes. You, you can find them all. And um, even more fascinating is that even within the same litter of siblings, a parent might adapt its uh, methods one way for one and, and in a different way for another. If, if uh, we talked to an Australian scientist who studies possums, and she was telling us about a group of possums that, you know, it was time for them to disperse. So off they went, except for one of the sons was having a little bit of trouble leaving. And the mom sheltered him for extra time, gave him extra food before he was ready to go out on his own
2: and there was that it was some studies of passerine birds that if early life was particularly tough for them the parents actually adjust the amount of parenting they give them extra time before fledging so this idea that there's individual flexibility in animal parenting was a new perspective and they even some species we found a species of penguins that even after the penguin chicks have fledged that is they've gone off into the you know the icy Antarctic waters to presumably fend for themselves during seasons where there is just not enough. Enough prey, those penguins sometimes come back to that natal area and are fed by parents. So these are kind of the penguin equivalents of kids who've gone off to college and, and come back and live in the garage.
1: The so-called yep. boomerang kids. And you know, we've been talking a lot in this conversation about compassion. And I think that it can really open our minds to what the world is like for a young person moving out into it really makes a difference in how they fare when they leave parental care. I think that that's really important to know for um, our own human teens that if it's, if it's a world with a lot of opportunity, a lot of food items, and not very many predators, that's going to be a different outcome than somebody moving into a world with a lot of predators and not very much food or resources.
0: I really like that description because it shows just how powerful the environment is. We didn't touch on this exactly, but the environment can be influenced by your parents. And so uh, if your parents are at a particular rank, they can, is it true that they can make that environment, that environment that they're now, their progeny are going into, they can make that environment better for them so that they can have a better, so that they can have a more successful outcome. Would you describe that as that transitive rank and sort of interference? Or do you look at that as a totally different way?
2: First of all, the environment absolutely, um, as you said, is so crucial to the outcome to an adolescent's future. The uh, shrink, the Nagoro Crater spotted hyena, although he was born at the bottom of the social ladder, he was born in the Nagoro Crater clan which, in that region, there's much, much more prey to eat, so it's a much richer environment. The Serengeti, there are clans of spotted hyenas, but the the amount of prey there is so much lower that the chances of a low ranking male hyena born there is not as good. So the environment can make all of the difference. One of the interesting points is that that you're making, I think, is that some of what determines an adolescent animal's future is, You know, the circumstances of their birth, right? There's high ranking animal parents, uh, do all kinds of things to make it more likely that their offspring climb the social ladder. And some of them are not very, you know, from by human standards, not very appealing right doing doing things to kind of push their own offspring ahead actually right. while we were writing this the that whole college admissions scandal uh, of course yeah. erupted and it was it was hard not to make those analogies but yes parents can uh, animal parents and including human parents can modify the environment to make it safer and uh, more enriched not just for their own offspring but for the entire group
1: We called this sort of the discovery of privilege in wild animals or these sort of ancient animal roots of social privilege, which is, you know, another one of these topics that we as a human society are talking about so much nowadays. And we think that bringing together the ideas of social rank inheritance, territory inheritance, when territory gets passed from animal families down, whether those are cockroach families or, you know, cheetah families, and then even inheritance of social networks, all of those kind of accumulation of privileges, those all help offspring in many different ways. And those aren't uniquely human.
0: Well, speaking of uniquely human, a lot of the really unique humans listening right now (laughs) are either new pet parents or recently adopted or have been pet parents for a while and they are adopting dogs or bringing dogs, welcoming dogs into their families during the adolescent period. And I think one really sort of capstone in your book in terms of what it feels like to prepare an adolescent for the life ahead of them, where they essentially leave that nest. And you mentioned inheritance. I think a lot of us do not, do not kind of consider the individual personalities of our pets at home and the individual characteristics of our pets at home. And so I might see a dog and say, and they'll say, he's a little bit scared. We're not sure if he's been abused or not. And I say, not every scared or nervous dog it has been abused. Sometimes they're just a nervous dog. And there may be things that in their inheritance, there may be things in their life that have made them or caused them to have these characteristics. What would you say is the most important lessons that either pet parents or even humans can take from animal adolescents in preparing for to leave to to prepare for the the life ahead of them?
2: One of the things I was really optimistic, there's a lot that's hopeful. I mean, so much of what we learned um, was fascinating and kind of a warning and helpful to keep adolescents safe and keep them happier. But a lot of it is a celebration of adolescence. And a lot of us know about, you know, neuroplasticity, right, this idea that there are certain periods during which the brain is going to be more influenced by what happens. And we think of early childhood and maybe gestation as a period of neuroplasticity. But it turns out that adolescence is this second really wonderful opportunity to have experiences, shape the temperament and the um, the outlook and the behavior of of a human animal or a non-human animal so one piece of this is just think of adolescence no matter what happened in the early life of let's say a dog if there was trauma if there was separation that was not good that adolescence is an opportunity period to number one of course tolerate bad behavior but understand it and recognize that that neurobiology the same neurobiology that's creating you know impulsivity and loudness and inappropriate behavior, let's say, whatever that is, that that same neurobiology is an opportunity. And to me, that seems like an optimistic message. And the other thing to, to draw from this is that in human adolescence, it's the period of life when some of the most creative work is done mathematicians who make breakthroughs they tip that typically happens during their adolescence darwin himself was an adolescent when he stepped on the beagle so and and then there's greta thurnberg and all this so adolescence is a it's an opportunity it's not just a you know something that's difficult that we have to tolerate
1: I would just add that, you know, for better and for worse, it, wildhood, that's, you know, adolescent phase that we call, it doesn't last forever. It's, it is not a disease to be cured or some phase of life to be avoided it has a purpose it evolved over 600 million years of animal life on earth and so it it like kind of like nature has your back for this phase of life but also (laughs) um also adolescents do have to use that time uh you don't want to squander that time so use it to practice and practice the skills learn from mentors and adults and and i think that goes for wild animals and for human animals
0: Your book and, you know, I like how you did that towards the end there because I just realized we've been talking about wildhood, but we never truly defined it. So here's what I'll do. I will say everybody who wants a very clear and very salient definition of what wildhood is, get the book, read it. It's fascinating. (laughs) You will enjoy every page and it's great. But I wanted to find out, you know, besides getting the book besides reading the book is people who are more interested in your work and and fascinated by what you're doing. Where can they find you? Where can they find out more information?
2: We have a website for Wildhood, which is wildhood.com, where we have a bunch of material, but certainly the videos that we talked about are on there. And uh, that, that's probably the best place to go. We also have um, Zubiquity.com, which um, connects to Wildhood. But Another that's
0: amazing book, yes.
2: It. More about the medical overlaps and the psychiatric overlaps of humans and animals.
0: Awesome. Awesome stuff. Well, uh, listen, I could talk to you both for another two hours, but we do not have that time because I know a lot <laughs> of other people want to talk to you as well. All I really want to do is just thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me during this it really engaging and illuminating conversation because there's so much more that we have to learn. And your book is not only a good start, it's more than a start. It's uh, foundational, it's core. And uh, I want everybody to check it out. It's a true page turner. And I want, want to thank you again for uh, your generosity of time.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. This was so wonderful to talk to you today. Thank
0: you. Excellent. If I ever have the pleasure, let's do a round two. Is that okay? Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) Let's do it tomorrow. Okay. Fantastic.
0: (laughs) Thank you again. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay. There you have it, folks. Two incredibly genius authors that just had an amazing conversation about their book, Wildhood, which really encapsulates and dials down almost like a Google Zoom function down to the adolescent comparisons between humans and animals. And we can, of course, make these uh, comparisons to our own pets at home. And that's that uh, human-animal bond. That's that interconnected relationship that we always try to reinforce so, so much. Both of them Raised in Southern California, have medical backgrounds, education backgrounds, and it led them into looking at these relationships. And we got a chance to talk about incredible things like neophilia or epiphobia, the fear of the new or fear of adolescence, and just talking about, more importantly, the idea of compassion. Once we understand what wildhood is for, what the adolescent period is for, as Miss Bauer said, it's it's not a disease to be cured. It's essentially a good practice time, and it's essentially perfect time to mess up because if you mess up usually if it's not fatal you got the rest of your life to get it back and that's a lesson we can certainly take human adolescence dumb or puppy adolescence and kittendom and all of those sorts of things and of course uh, to us as ourselves and, and looking at our the adolescence that we know in our lives so again amazing conversation absolutely wonderful and I was so happy to have them join me until next time we'll have more incredible and illustrious guests and just remember there's nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. Let's Talk Pets every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com